you know, coming back then to this question of parenting, yes. um, I, I think that parents can be overwhelmed with all the decisions they have to make mm-hmm. on a daily basis. I, I can <laughs> say this from experience. Um, you know, and that, of course that makes sense because the expectations for parenting are rising all the time. Um, so when it comes to putting your kids in sports, getting your kids involved in sports, what kind of information do teams, coaches, and so forth need to put up front and center for prospective parents and athletes to look at? What do parents need to look for? Um, and where should teams make this information available? How do they go about trying, how, like how should a parent go about trying to choose a sports club mm-hmm. that acts to ensure that its values are upheld, that its policies are actionable and enforceable? Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's the million dollar question, Nathan. Um, (laughs) Basically, the trick is for parents to make the right choice with woefully inadequate information. And especially if their clubs have a no viewing policy or you have a child who internalizes their thoughts and feelings. It's can I say that? Kim, can I let me just Mm -hmm. jump in because I totally hear what you're saying. I you know, the only experience that my own child has had with sports so far is with um, Parks and Rec mm-hmm. in our in our local community. And actually, we've had really good experiences overall. Um, but, you know, part of that is I'm there mm-hmm. when she's participating in these activities. And I was shocked when, when she was enrolled in a youth dance class for like literally, I'm saying, two to four-year-olds. Mm-hmm. Okay, a Parks and Rec class. It was a dance class. It was like junior ballet, I guess. is what they, It wasn't listed as ballet, but that's basically the mentality that they were pursuing, mm-hmm. which, by the way, I think has a lot in common with gymnastics. Yeah in terms of the sort of intensity, right, mm-hmm. of um, the enterprise from a young age. And like they were telling parents with like the tiniest children who'd never been left by their parents ever before, leave the room, go to a place where you can't even see them. And I was stunned. I mean, I didn't leave. You know, I was like, at the end of the day, there was a glass wall and I stood outside the glass wall and looked the entire time at what was happening inside. So I didn't actually feel like I was that removed. But just the fact that it's normalized, that would be an acceptable thing to ask of parents. Like, leave your two to four-year-old with me. You've never met me before, right? Like, you didn't choose this. You didn't pick out this instructor. You were given an instructor. And then just like, leave your child now. Hope for the best. Yeah, but that's it. That's the thing. And, and... And I would say, and I don't know if it's intentional or not, but there is a grooming of parents. And so when I read, um, you know, comments in on social media, people that maybe haven't had the same parenting of an athlete experience that I have and many of my friends have, um, and there's a complete... Um, what's like lack of tolerance for parents and, and, you know, accusations that parents aren't doing their job or parents are, are stupid or parents are, are negligent because they left their child at an activity or didn't really know what was going on. It starts there four years old and you have a choice in that moment to make whether you allow your child to participate in that dance class and you know, and you have to sit out or sit away from it, no viewing, or you don't, and you take them home and you deal with a child that's upset, crying, and and they've been, um, they've had an opportunity taken away from them because right. of a requirement that doesn't sit well with you as a parent. And so what are you going to do for her whole life? Are you going to just say, sorry, if I can't watch, I'm taking her home, or if I can't have any say in her you know, her development as a human being that I'm, she can't participate because eventually 
you're you're gonna have to also deal with your child when when they are right. older and, and want to have agency about what activities they participate in and and it's the structure just doesn't allow for that so already you know from you're going to be um groomed as a father well from you know your da- daughter's age six onward that you have to make that choice and and that this is acceptable in sport and frankly this is how it happens because at four a class for a four to six year old I'm going to hope and assume that you have a lovely young dance teacher who is friendly and kind and encouraging and all the right things and that the weight of um, expectation on that dance instructor is not so metal focused and winning focused or, you know, professional dance company focused that there's going to be any need to be harsh on the kids. And they're trying to cultivate a love of that activity, a love of sport. So you're going to go through six months of that with your daughter and you may decide to leave her and not watch her. And she'll happily come out every time telling you what she learned and how fun it was. And the next time you're in that position, when she's 10 years old and there's no viewing and you'll be like, well, it went really well last time when she was six years old, it went fine. And the coach was great. And, and so you do it again and you don't watch and you don't ask questions and you further remove yourself. And, and I've been as a parent implicitly told you will not watch. I've been shamed. I've had, um, my, the other athletes, parents contact me in tears because they were shamed for showing up too early or and watching for a bit you know i remember once standing in the hallway to pick up my daughter at gymnastics and uh i was there a few minutes early and they actually put a giant what's called a porta pit it's a giant mat up at the end of the hallway so that parents couldn't even catch a peek wow. of their gymnasts wow. if they were there early so, so, so this is the training that parents are getting year after year after year, and their kids are getting further and further entrenched in the sport. They maybe they love the sport; it's become their a big part of their identity, their passion. It's their outlet for uh, all kinds of things, you know, social engagement, physical well-being, etc. And then, what are you going to do? Say, sorry, you can't do dance or gymnastics or what have you. Uh, because they don't let parents watch it. Yeah, it's, it's a, that's right. No, I got chill, <laughs> Kim. I've got chills from what you're saying, because like when you describe what the four to six experience was, I was almost, I was like, shout out to Miss Aisha, mm-hmm. who's done a magnificent job right, right, right yeah. now with my daughter in a dance class. It was a, she was a pure delight. I was like, this is, she is like the, the platonic ideal of what I want a teacher to be. Oh, Nathan, um, can moment. I, can I just say that what it is? It's the, what's it called? The boiling of a frog fable, right? Like you put the frog in a pot of boiling water and he'll jump out right away. But if you put him in lukewarm water and make it kind of cozy and nice, he'll swim around in the pot and you can up the temperature until it's boiling and then he's dead. So it's, it's something, it's something akin to that. Exactly. And that's why I got chills because I was thinking like I, I was having all these like positive <laughs> vibes and then it was like, oh, and then, then that's what happens next. And that's what happens next. Oh, my God. Like I could see how easy it is to be seduced yes. by that kind of development. I was That was my exact experience, unfortunately. You know, when I left the sport as an athlete, I didn't look back 
for 20 some odd years until I had a daughter who we tried every sport uh, to introduce her to all kinds of different things, probably six or seven different sports by the time she was six years old. And all she kept saying was, I want to do gymnastics. Why won't you teach me a cartwheel, mummy? So I did teach her a cartwheel and she learned it in you know three seconds. And my husband and I locked eyes and sort of shook our heads and and we let her go into gymnastics, but the coach was amazing, wonderful. And I literally went home to my husband and said, don't worry, gymnastics has changed since I was there. It's going to be amazing. Oh, it's going to be amazing. And it was amazing for the first two or maybe even three years. It was great. And she loved it. And she was super good at it. And it was her journey. And we were, you know, we were okay to facilitate that even though, you know, the hours were crazy. I mean, I think by the time she was 10, she was doing more than 20 hours a week and we were going twice, twice a day some days. Uh, I didn't necessarily agree with all that, but I felt like I had very little voice or agency um, to decide how my daughter would spend her time, you know, as far as uh, they had a schedule, you either complied or you didn't. Um, you were either in or you were out. There wasn't any gray area. And, you know, it was it was two or three years at most of of comfort and joy and, and loving this journey and and then it wasn't. And and you know, and by and then you're making some really tough choices and you're hoping that you're you're giving your child agency but also making decisions that they may not want you to make, but you know you have to for for their mental and physical well-being. And you know as as you know athletes get older right the and, and for parents right the investment gets greater mm -hmm. and so it's almost like the what people are losing are greater than right if you're sort of beginning a sport that maybe you're not that invested in or you know it's all fun and games or whatever and then as you get older the invest because the investment gets greater, both in terms of not only monetary investment, but also like personal and familial and identity based, right? That then the sort of um, option to remove oneself from that environment, if it gets to be not fun and, and harmful and, and abusive, right? Then like the, what you're losing is, is greater than it was before, right? Because it's also about your identity. It's about your community um, and, and things like that. And, you know, one thing that I was sort of thinking about him as you're kind of discussing, you know, showing up at the gym early and the coach basically putting up a mat to block the view is just like ridiculous. And, you know, I'm, I'm thinking back when I was a coach and I only worked with little kids from ages like five to 11 or 12 was kind of the oldest that I went. And, you know, I always, when I coached in Florida, I was mainly, mainly at out at outdoor pools. Although then once I started coaching for Gator Swim Club, which is associated with the University of Florida, um, they have a big indoor pool and that's where a lot of the practices were. But when we were outside at this old team that I used to coach with, um, I mean, parents, there were plenty of places for parents to sit. Mm -hmm. Um, and you know, the, I guess kind of one thing that I'm thinking is sort of like why coaches are so hesitant to have parents around sort of what is the purpose of, of, of not allowing them to be there. And, you know, yes, there were the handful of parents that were, you know, very involved to the point of being meddlesome where they would say, you know, I don't think your practice is hard enough today <laughs> or so-and-so was cheating in the pool and pulling in the lane line 
or, you know, I noticed that my kid, you know, wasn't being encouraged maybe the way I thought they could have been. And there are sorts of those things, Mm -hmm. which, you know, on the one hand can be annoying, but at, at the same time, like some of it leads into some of the stuff that you're talking about is, you know, is the coach being too harsh on the athlete? Is there an issue with the tone? Is there an issue with the language that's being said? And, you know, one thing that I've, you know, been very honest about is when I was a coach and I didn't know all of these things that I know now, and then I will know in the future as I study this more is, you know, I would say things that, you know, were not the most helpful. One of them being, which is pretty minor, but I would tell the boys, you know, like, don't let the the girls beat you, Mm -hmm. which is just reinforcing some really toxic ideas of masculinity, what men are capable of, of doing of what girls are capable of doing and kind of who should be beating whom, which is totally ridiculous. And it took a parent for me to come up to me and be like, Oh, like, why did you say that Mm. to the swimmers? And it kind of snapped me out of like, Oh crap, I shouldn't be telling them this. This is just something that I had heard like countless times that I thrived on when I was a a girl athlete was beating the boys was something I got such a high off of. So it was so motivating, but it's really harmful. And so like, did I want to hear a parent saying that to me and asking me that? No, Mm. but it, it also really helped me. So I guess I'm just sort of ruminating on this whole thing of sort of what is the the parent coach uh, relationship and and sort of what are we doing by preventing parents from being around and then it also requires parents to have the time to to sit around and to watch their athlete right a lot of you know parents and work from with working class backgrounds you know they probably don't always have the time to be able to watch their athletes so I imagine that it also leaves parents from you know, less financially strong backgrounds at a disadvantage to be able to watch their athlete. Yeah, absolutely. You bring up an amazing point, And that is that parents also have to hold up the mirror to their own behavior. You know, are mm-hmm. they putting too much pressure on the coach or the child mm-hmm. to act in a certain way? Uh, you know, I, I came up with a list of questions for myself that I would would ask and then shared with other parents mm-hmm. when I did parent education sessions. And that is, you know, am I adequately involved in my child's sport experience or am I interfering with that experience? Mm. Am I getting in the way? You know, what am I hoping my child will get out of this sport experience? And am I in line with my child's goals? Because there are some parents who are hell-bent on ensuring that their kids train towards uh, an NCAA scholarship but does your kid mm-hmm. even want to do their sport after high school mm. or are they academically inclined or musically inclined and want to focus on a completely different direction? Um, and, and, you know, are you on the same page with the coach? Is the coach even on the same page as the athlete? Like some kids are truly just there for the joy of the sport. And I would say, you know, I was a super driven athlete, but I also was really primarily there for the joy of the sport. Um, I never really looked ahead. I might have thought this year I'd like to make nationals, but it was never like, okay, this year nationals, next year maybe I'll try for national team. I'd love to get an assignment somewhere. Definitely want, you know, a scholarship to a Div 1 school. No, I sent my recruitment tapes. Okay, that was a VHS tape back in the day, but I sent those tapes to Div 2 schools in the U.S., thinking, ah, shot in the dark, maybe I'll get a scholarship, put the tape together myself, the whole bit. And it was only, I only ended up at the University of Nebraska because a Div 2 school uh, had heard that Nebraska was looking for a good bar worker. And so they sent my tape for me to the coach at Nebraska Mm. and he contacted me. 
yeah, th- that was it. I, I, you know, it was just sort of lucky that I got there, but it wasn't because I was driving or m- my mother was driving me towards a scholarship. Um, and, and I think that parents need to really check in with the coach and the child to make sure that they're all on the same page and that it's the child that is um, advocating for what they want out of their sport experience and that that, that choice can change. One day it's, I want to make the Olympics. And the next day is, you know what? No, I'd actually like to join the performance team, which requires half the time commitment uh, as it does to be an elite gymnast. And then I want to take mm. up basketball. And and that's that child's individual right. And so, yeah, like as parents, do we need to hear some hard truths from our kids? And do we need to hear some hard truths from the coach? Like maybe this mm. child doesn't have the talent to get to the place that they want to go. They think they want to make the Olympics, but they just don't have the right ingredients to become that level of an elite athlete. That's hard, but it's manageable. It's totally workable. You can totally um, have those conversations with a child without devastating their self-esteem. And parents need to accept those hard truths also. So, you know, I kind of skipped over Nathan's request to where can parents get information? What do they need to know? And I think at the, you know, just to really bring it back to how great sport is and to say that abuse is not so much of a sport issue as it is an issue of individuals misusing their access to children. So clubs who provide access to children are also then responsible for having safeguards in place. And safeguards can be things like information available on the website. So I would say parents should start by looking for uh, bylaws, policies, and information on the club's website. You know, do they articulate their values or have they not even developed them yet? You know, many clubs have inadequate policies with respect to conduct, complaints, et cetera, um, because the expectation for this kind of information is really new. But you can talk to the club about what their values are. And then as a parent, you can ask questions about how they live those values um, right. and how they live their policies. Because it's it's one thing to have policies in writing, and it's a whole different ballgame to see a club actually um, live those policies. You know, if- that's the skepticism that kicked in right away for me, <laughs> Kim, as you, as you were talking about the policy. You know, and you know, actually, just to follow up, it's, it's in keeping with the conversation we've been having. It made me think of something that I've heard from college athletes about the recruitment process, mm. which I think is analogous to what we're talking about here, because we're, we're talking in a way of a, a form of recruitment, right? You want to sign your kid up to go into something that they're not in yet. And regardless of who's sort of leading that drive, right, there's this process of negotiating one another. Mm-hmm. Um, and it seems to me like the ideal, like you can have words on a web page, but at the end of the day, what you need to be able to do is to be in a real practice and see what actually happens when those coaches are with kids. But the problem is, and I know this is the problem because I know this is what happens at colleges. They bring the athletes during recruitment into the practices, but they are fake practices. Mm. They never, ever again treat the athletes in the same way that they treat them during those recruiting sessions, right? That's the really, that's the, that's the kind of the, 
that's the um, sales pitch version, yeah. right? That's the polished version. That's the words on a web page version. Mm-hmm. But the real version looks nothing like that. And so I hear college athlete after college athlete tell me, basically, I was sold a lie, right? Mm-hmm. This is not what they told me I was getting into. They all sign up for something different than what they get in the end. But I don't know how you solve that problem, right? Like, how do you then become the fly on the wall in the moments when you need to be? Yeah, I, I think it's critical thinking, right? You, as a parent, you, you start looking through the lens of an adult, what is actually happening. Um, you can take your own learning to the next level by being sure you're astute with things like the rule of two. And I won't go into what that is, but Google it and, and they can find rule of two and how their club implements it understanding the sports governance structure, like who actually holds the power? Is it the national sport organization? Is it the provincial? Is it the club itself? Speak with other parents, ask tough questions. Don't just ask, how do you like things here? Because I've sat in those conversations where I watched and I've probably been complicit myself in saying, oh, it's pretty good here, you know, to the new parent and things are okay here. But, you know, knowing full well that Sure, things are good right now, but I saw the coach they're going to have next year and it does not look safe, you know. Um, Mm. So, you know, all of us are complicit in that, or I shouldn't say all of us, but I have been complicit in that. And, And part of it is hope and desire that it will get better and this eternal optimism. But part of it is just that, you know, there's that line between when am I speaking ill of something that I shouldn't be and when is it justified? Um. And I I think that one of the most valuable pieces of advice I got uh, years ago was to make sure that my kids know that if they can't come to me for some reason or my husband for some reason, it's too embarrassing or they're uncomfortable or they don't want to disappoint us, whatever the reason is, if they can't come to us, I want them to know that there is another safe adult in their life that they can talk about difficult things with. So maybe that's their auntie or their grandma or one of my best friends who I trust and they would know who those are. And and you identify that person. And even you can set it up with that person. Call your best friend and say, my daughter might call you at some point because you've been identified as her her other safe person that she can talk to about difficult things. And so I think, you know, I think that's uh, something it's a it's a tool and then from there i would say not only to think critically as a parent when watching your sport um the sport engagement but also teaching kids to think critically so asking themselves questions did i like how i was treated today you know my my daughter used to get in the car and two, one or two other girls that i carpooled would get into the car and they'd be very glum Uh, after practice many many times majority of the time and I would say hey what's going on and how was practice and they would say fine but the coach was mad at us again coach was mad at us coach was mad at us coach was mad at us and and I used to find that so like crazy uh interesting and and I couldn't didn't know what to make of the words mad at us and and even the words she doesn't like me or uh, I didn't do well enough. Those were all really subtle ways of my, at the time, nine, then 10 year old and her friends saying, we weren't treated well. Something is amiss. 
they, they're not treating us well. To, and for, for those kids to, to get in my car so many nights feeling that glum, feeling shamed, feeling that they weren't good enough, that they had disappointed this coach who was, by all accounts, you know, the pretty, funny, engaging coach that they just wanted to have like them. And they were disappointing them in their eyes. Sorry, disappointing her in their eyes. Most practices was devastating to them. And that should have been one of my first clues that things were not okay. Things were starting to go downhill. But what I've learned since is that kids use really different language than an adult would use. Kids of that age, you know, maybe when they're 15, they're more articulate, they can describe the situation better. But at the time with the limited vocabulary, the kids were trying to tell me that things were not okay in the gym by saying my coach hates me or she's mad at me all the time. And I wish I had known then what I know now. Awesome. Thank you so much for that. And that really leads us so perfectly to the next, I mean, you've already started talking about this. And so by, by I think this process of having these really, um, these honest conversations with, with your, ch with children and, you know, establishing, um, a safe person outside of the immediate family that they can go to. Um, and then also kind of re trying to read into some of their language, I think is really useful. And so I'm, I'm wondering, and, you know, I don't, I would love to actually see a study, um, to, to kind of figure out, you know, what is the, um, how do I say, and what, what is the, uh, probability or the percentage in which parents actually have these conversations with children? Um, cause I, I would bet that they are pretty rare, but it, you know, at what age do you think parents need to start having these conversations with children about, you know, what are acceptable boundaries? What are their goals? As you already mentioned earlier, um, you know, what, what kinds of conversations do, you know, do parents need to be having with children? And so when do you think these conversations should start, I guess is what I'm trying to ask. Well, my, the parenting me would like to say, have the conversations and start them before the problem arises. Um, mm. Arm them, equip them with what they need to know to protect themselves. But admittedly, I'm not a child development specialist. Um, so I, I don't want to give a specific age, but I definitely think it's worth researching mm -hmm. for a parent. I mean, there's so many resources uh, online or call up a, a child psychologist in your area and have pay the $100 or whatever. I mean, I, I, that's speaking from a place of privilege that, you know, that I have access to that. But whatever you can do, um, whether it's paid or, or free resource, take the time to investigate that. Because for me to say even, oh, you should have the, the talks when they're six may not be developmentally appropriate for another person's six-year-old. Maybe it's eight, maybe it's mm -hmm. nine years old. But there are many websites offering support specifically to sport parents that deal with what appropriate adult to child conduct looks like. And also to be considered are the nuances within a certain sport that are worth learning about. So for instance, with gymnastics, it's a sport that necessitates physical contact between coach and athlete. Coaches touch uh, the athlete's bodies in all kinds of ways to help them with the shape, with form, with you know safety spotting. Um, and what should that contact look like? You know, if you're not a, a gym, former gymnast yourself, I'm not sure that a parent would even know uh, 
um, what spotting, um, appropriate spotting looks like all the time. Um, so find mm-hmm. that out and, and then help your child set boundaries. You know, I can't help but think of a, a really great coach I had, a male coach, and I would have been about 15 or 16 and he was spotting me for a dismount off bars and he accidentally uh, hit me with his hand right in my chest and I looked at him and he looked at me and the horror that registered in his face and the oh sorry sorry he was embarrassed he was apologetic he was he was truly horrified and and it was a complete accidental you know knock and that was it but his response taught me a message that obviously I still can call up easily today. And that is what's appropriate. Where is it appropriate for a coach to touch me and how should they react if they, if they do inadvertently touch me in a spot that, that they shouldn't. Well, if they make a joke of it or sexualize it in any way, I now know that that wouldn't be appropriate because this coach showed me that someone with no ill intent acts with complete horror and and mm-hmm. an apology when they do touch a, a place that's not appropriate and not part of professional spotting. So lessons like that, I was lucky to learn it in that way. And frankly, I used it. I used that to guide me for probably the rest of my gymnastics career. And it, it also, I guess it allowed me to value my body too. And, and, and it taught me that unless someone had asked for access to my body in a way um, that was not standard, that I was allowed to say no to it too. That that moment taught me so much. And I'm very grateful to that male coach for, for that. Well, okay, so let's let's build on this, Kim, because I think this kind of brings us to something you've been talking about throughout, but it's like maybe maybe it's the most important kind of question we have here. So I, that's why I want to make sure that we underline it. Based on your experiences working in safe sport and gymnastics Canada, I think it would be really helpful to hear how we can help parents figure out how to identify warning signs on their children's teams. Mm-hmm. What are the signs of grooming that parents and children need to be aware of? Mm-hmm. Great question. Um, okay, so a lot of my information is informed from some of the professionals at the uh, Center for Child Protection in Canada, um, and they deal with the worst of the worst. And I would like to say it's actually a, a woman there named Noni Claussen who is brilliant at the work she does in this space. And she's also the one that said to me that um, overwhelmingly sport is safe and kids need to be involved in it. So I feel comforted that if someone who sees the worst of the worst for you know child sexual abuse, for instance, is saying that sport is a place kids still need to be, and it's overwhelmingly safe. I think we need to take some comfort in that. It's not to say, you know, lie down and and forget parental responsibility, but I don't think we need to walk around terrified as parents. For parents to assess the sport environment their child is involved in, I think a big question is what behaviors am I witnessing and how does it make me feel to see these things? Am I comfortable with it? Some specific um, indicators of um, possible grooming or inappropriate uh, conduct 
or developing inappropriate conduct because it doesn't necessarily, in fact, it rarely happens all at once. It's a very slow, mm -hmm. gradual process. Um, a lot of grooming for from on the parents, so grooming of the athletes, grooming of the teammates. So what I know to look for now is boundary breaking. So it's, for instance, a boundary breaking action by a coach might look like organizing one-on-one -on -one practice at an off time with the athlete. It might look like texts from the coach, gifts, unsupervised travel, massages not given by a certified therapist with all the professional safeguards in place. It could look like overly intrusive questions. So your child gets in the car and says, mm, today was kind of weird, mom. My coach asked me, um, you know, uh, something about our home life and yours and daddy's relationship or... Um, do I have a boyfriend? And he wouldn't let it go when I said, no, I'm not old enough for a boyfriend. Um, you know, I I had a, a situation. My child got in the car and said she was mad at her coach. And I asked why. And she said, and it was a male coach. She said, because my when my ponytail was getting messy, he wanted to fix my hair. And I asked if I could have the female coach fix my hair. And he said, no, bend over and I'll do your hair. So he made her bend over so that all her hair dropped down and he could facilitate a nice high ponytail. But, you know, I was fairly put off like that. And I'll be honest, at the time, I did not know how to deal with it. And I didn't deal with it at the coach level. I tried to tool my child and I gave her the permission and power to walk away from that situation. And if it resulted in her getting kicked out, then she would call me. We had a, a whole plan, but you know, I was putting a lot of pressure on my, I think, nine-year-old at the time to deal with that situation. And, and I regret that because I probably should have dealt with that with the adult coach. So boundary breaking um, can also look like any transgression from what would normally be expected of a, a coach or a professional with respect to their work competencies, duties, and regular hours. So anything that goes beyond regular operating procedure for a coach or a, the professional that you're dealing with um, needs to be looked at crit very critically and possibly addressed. Um, let's see. I think that as a parent, you should see that the relationship between the coach and the athlete and the coach or the athlete and other sports administrators in the club should be formalized and should be consistent across, across the athletes. Um, singling out of athletes to either treat them particularly poorly or particularly good. Uh, those are red flags to me. You know, it's not about whether a coach is a good or a bad person. It's establishing a set of rules and standards that we all need to adhere to, to protect everyone. A few other red flags that come to mind for me is if you see as a parent and you're looking at this through the parent lens, not the child's lens. So child gets a gift from a coach and they're super excited and feel very special and honored. That's looking, and if you share in all that joy, that's looking at it through the child's lens. You need to look at it through the lens of a parent and your child getting a gift that nobody else got from the coach is indeed a red flag. Uh, if you see unquestionable loyalty, 
and compliance from your child to the coach's wishes, that is a red flag that you as a parent need to educate and arm your child um, with more agency and the ability to mm, be a bit skeptical about that kind of attention. If you see that your child is really disconnected from their body, um, so they're not really aware of um, a transgression of a hand or like some inappropriate touching, that's a red flag. Um, your child should be able to make choices and communicate their preferences. You may need to role play with your child on how they can say to a coach, no, I don't want you to do my hair. I'm not comfortable with that. But I would allow this female coach to do my hair. They also need help and support on how to use their voice at a practice. And I found this to be really useful because coaches, overwhelmingly, coaches are good. They're good people. They're good practitioners of their craft. Um, they, they want, uh, one hopes the best for, for the athlete. And I think uh, teaching a child how to use their voice in a way that communicates what they need and want without, um, I guess without being demanding or whiny or or all those things that are, you know, really natural for for kids to do if you can teach them to, you know, bring things forward in a in a positive way that will be received by the coach in the way that it's intended, if they can offer solutions, you know, I I have found that uh, to your point that coach to your point Joanna about, you know, when things are brought to the attention of a coach they're like, oh, yeah, I didn't think of it like that. Sure, I can do it that way. Mm. So even mm. for an athlete or a child to bring forward a solution to a coach for something that will work better for them as an individual athlete, it's completely acceptable. But kids need help practicing and preparing for that. And ideally, parents aren't responsible for all of this. Ideally, the club is doing mm. this. The club is bringing in child development experts to work with the coaches, to work with the kids, and maybe hosting a parent education session on this topic so that mm -hmm. parents are just reinforcing the learnings at home, not trying to, you know, start it from scratch because that's a, it's a whole skill set unto itself. And I, mm -hmm. I think ultimately, I think we would all agree that gold medals are not going to protect a child from home from harm. Sorry. Gold medals are not going to protect a child from harm. We've got, you know, the most successful gymnast arguably of all time, Simone Biles, who in fact was harmed. And so so it's not easy. It's not easy, but success will not protect your child. Sometimes it's the most successful athlete who has been through the most difficult journey it's teaching them how they can expect to be treated and giving them voice when behavior falls outside of their boundaries of comfort and 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 at the end of the day to me no gold medal is worth the harm and i think coaches need to get their heads around the fact that you know a kid is not there a kid has not given you permission to use any tactic you can think of to get them to the podium. They're there to learn the sport, enjoy the sport, live the sport. And at any time, I bet 
any athlete would say it's not worth the gold medal. In fact, I've read stories of Olympic gold medalists who said that they were ashamed to get up on the podium because it didn't represent um, a happy experience for them. Their training had not been a happy experience. And uh, I mean, that is just not what we're after here at all. So yeah, those are, that's, those are some of the things I learned, some of them, sadly, in hindsight, and I am happy to share them with parents going forward so they won't make the same mistakes I made. Um, and some of them I, I knew at the time and was able to implement, and I think it, it helped. And, and I, I, I just think going blindly into any of these um, experiences leaves your child at, at higher risk for harm. Absolutely. You know, thank you so much for, for walking us through that. And I think you bring up a really important point. You brought up an important point towards the end that I just want to kind of emphasize um, and reiterate is that, you know, it, it shouldn't just be the parents doing this work, um, right? That I think the, I think one thing that maybe parents can look for is do, do, uh, do teams bring in specialists to educate the parents, as you talked about, I hadn't thought about that, but I think that's awesome. I think um, bringing in people to educate um, athletes about like what is proper behavior from coaches, boundary setting, all these things. And I think, you know, if an organization, if a team and a league were to, to bring people in to educate everybody, I think that would go a long way towards building trust amongst parents, amongst athletes for the team. It isn't to say that all of you know, the experts that they, that they could bring in and speak about these things would get everything right, right? So it doesn't mean that you should sort of take off your critical lenses. It doesn't mean that you should throw your questions out the window, but it means that they're at least making some effort to institutionalize some kind of protection measure, some kind of care and boundaries uh, between um, athletes and coaches. And again, sort of empowering everyone to, 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 to be involved in this. And, you know, I think back to the ridiculous, you know, online courses that I had to take for USA Swimming when I was a coach. And I mean, I hated them because it was like a lot of it was unpaid work and I'd wait till last minute to do it. But there would be like one section on sexual abuse and grooming and it focused so narrowly on sexual abuse. And I think the issue with doing that that I hadn't really thought about, but that you're really helping me see is that the, you know, the narrow focus on sexual abuse assumes that that is like one kind of category of behavior. And it is, but there are so many steps towards grooming for sexual abuse that started with sort of other forms that you were talking about here, boundary breaking. I thought the example of, you know, the, the male coach insisting that he be the one to redo your daughter's hair, you know, I wouldn't necessarily have thought about that even now, much less in the moment when, you know, a child is telling their parent that. Um, so to cut yourself, you know, some slack, I wouldn't even thought of that as an example of crossing a boundary. But you're absolutely right. Right. It is a way of sort of of a coach saying, you know, like to to the child, like your boundaries don't matter. Uh -huh. Right. I am the authority here. and I am the one that's going to establish what you should be comfortable with me doing. Right. And that just opens the door for them to do that again and again and again, if they hadn't already started doing this already. And so I think that's really, really important um, and, and really leads me to this next question, which is what happens when instances of abuse and harassment occur? Um, you know, knowing your your background, 
how do national sport organizations deal with athletes' complaints? And I know that you can only speak to, you know, the experiences that you are aware of, but sort of how do they typically deal with these complaints? Or I should say these complaints. How do they deal when instances arise? Because it's not that these are complaints. These are legitimate concerns. So what happens when abuse and harassment occur? Yeah, another great question. Um, yeah, so look, I don't think for a moment that any sport organization or the people in it want abusive practices to occur or purposefully seek to harm athletes. But historically, many many organizations have adopted these general governance structures and policies concerning abuse that had the effect of allowing abuse to occur and continue without effective intervention. Like they just have not been working. Um, the more traditional corporate governance models didn't meaningfully involve athletes in decisions or policy making. Um, it didn't provide an effective avenue for athletes to raise and resolve complaints involving misconduct. So the key going forward will be how sport organizations choose to evolve their governance model, because it does it does start at the top. Now, that doesn't mean that just because we get it right at the top means it's going to trickle down all the way to the local club in a small town and be effective, because unfortunately, the whole structure is flawed in in who has jurisdiction over what matters uh, or what issues. So, for instance, you know, is a coach's misconduct, is that an employment issue that their employer should handle at the club level? Is it a membership violation of co the code of conduct at the provincial level? Or is it uh, misconduct that needs to be addressed by the national sport organization? And each sport needs to figure that out for itself. And, and frankly, take a hard stance on it and have everybody in line. And, and that alone is a challenge. I'm not saying that's easy because every lot of people have a lot of different perspectives on that. I would say that most sport organizations in at least Canada are defaulting to this sort of quasi-judicial proceeding when it comes to complaint and discipline. Um, which is very time consuming and extremely costly. It involves a lot of lawyers um, on both sides. And, and I don't necessarily think it even comes uh, to a great conclusion at the end all the time. Um, yeah, so I think in order for any sport organization to deal effectively with harassment and abuse, it first of all needs to be staffed with people willing to demonstrate institutional courage. And I would like everybody listening to this podcast to really think about the words institutional courage because we don't see it enough. And it is scary and it is hard. This work is not easy or rewarding in any way. I can say that from personal experience firsthand, and I can say it from um, the perspective of those that I worked with. I should clarify, actually, that um, you know my role as chair of the Safe Sport Committee for Gymnastics Canada was to work on policy development, um, educational components for the community, etc. I was not directly involved with any um, complaint or disciplinary proceedings at all. Um, 
So that's the limit of, of my, uh, my experience there. But, you know, whether it's at the club level, the national sport organization, provincial or state level, the organization has to be made up of individuals who not only have professional skills necessary to run these multi-million dollar entities, but also have the moral courage to stand up for what is right and to make decisions based on ethical values to help, to support, and to protect athletes that come forward. Um, you know, you add in the complication that the accused in any one case might be a friend or ally of a sports administrator. And now the requirement for moral courage and objectivity is exponentially higher. So it's a very complicated procedure, but this quasi-judicial system that I see a lot of sports using, organizations using is not effective. It's, um, it requires you know, the athlete to come forward and be exposed. There's no anonymity, even if the complainant is a child. The accused is offered a level of confidentiality that exceeds what we even see in our criminal justice system. The complaints can sit with the sport organization for months and months and not be addressed. The complainant isn't kept apprised as to what the developments are. Um, sometimes sport organizations handle the complaint internally and I think there's no place for that at all. It has to be handed off to a completely external uh, body that can deal with the complaint in the most objective way possible. Because you're you're talking about the mental and physical well-being of the the athlete in this moment and ongoing. The, these sorts of experiences leave scars on athletes that athletes spend decades trying to overcome. You're also talking about uh, possibly a coach or a sports administrator who has dedicated their life to this sport this, and their livelihood is based on this. And it's the only thing they know. They may or may not have even gone to university and have any other skills besides being a gymnastics coach or being a sports administrator. I, I think they're just is room for us exploring better, more cost-effective, more uh, objective and fair proceedings that don't um, require a child to be cross-examined for six hours, that don't um, require uh, the complainant to have to stay silent about what's happened to them. They ha should have the freedom and the right to speak out. Uh, likewise, the accused has the the right to speak out and defend themselves both publicly in, or in the media and um, using, you know, whatever legal support they have to, to plead their case. Um, I just, I think the whole system, though, is, is upside down right now. And part of that is because we are not coming from the place that complainants are believed and working back from there. So if we were to honor the complaint and work back from there, I just think we would be honoring the humanity involved from both the accused and the complainant and, and possibly getting to a better, a better conclusion. 
you know, and sometimes that conclusion is really harsh sanctions. And sometimes that conclusion is you need to re-educate and then we need to put you coach in an environment that is really positive and spend, you know, six months being mentored in that space because you have some really great skills, but you crossed the line, um, you know, in your word choice or tone of voice or yelling or, you know, um, not believing an athlete when they said they were injured and now they have a career ending injury. Like some of these things, you know, maybe they can be remedied by education and support mentorship. I don't know. I don't know for sure, but whatever we're doing now is not working. Excellent. And and to kind of go back to um, we're talking about how to empower athletes to understand their bodies and establish boundaries, what to do when, but not if, but when somebody might cross the line, they can veer into abuse or harassment, as we've been talking about. Um, so first off, what are some of the, we, I guess we've talked about this broadly, but what do you think are some of the biggest barriers that prevent athletes from finding and sharing their voice and advocating for themselves? Well, again, it goes back to the archaic sport system and mm-hmm. this control dominance model that is so pervasive in many sports, particularly sports like dance, gymnastics. Um, synchronized swimming uh, seems to uh, figure skating seems to be these uh, aesthetically judged sports um, that you know there's some gender-based violence no question about that there's gender-based violence there's this uh, power imbalance um, exceptional power imbalances everywhere reward for compliant behavior being coachable is you know held at the top of the top of good qualities for an athlete to have. And I don't disagree with that, except when you're operating within a control and dominance model, being coachable is very akin to being exploited. Mm -hmm. I think age and size differentials between coaches and athletes, especially when you're talking about gymnastics, where typically the athletes themselves are quite small and young, um, you know, by age 12, an elite gymnast is training 30 hours a week, twice a day. That's a lot of time to be spent with, with a coach who you're, who you as an athlete are trying to please, trying to get technical correction from trying to get attention from a lot of variables that that would cause you to bite your tongue when things aren't feeling uh, quite right or or boundaries are being transgressed. Um, I think that that these are all reasons that contribute to an athlete not not being able to speak up. I, I don't even know that it, it's not a lack of will. Um, it mm-hmm. it's the structure doesn't support that. There's very few clubs who have implemented um, mechanisms by which an athlete can make a complaint. You know, I would love to see more often, you know, a comment box just for athletes where they can anonymously drop in their comments or their thoughts, or, you know, even um, sort of written out equations. When you said this coach, it made me feel like this. And if you had said it this way, coach, I would have responded in this way. And 
you know, uh, and, but you have to teach kids to be able to do that as well. And you have to teach coaches to be open to that kind of feedback. Um, but I think, yeah, I think there is a complete hierarchy that's impossible for a child or even a young adult athlete to transcend when it comes to the relationship between coach and athlete. Um, and I, th- I think coaches in general are a very powerful entity. They are sometimes more powerful than the sports administrators at the national sport level. Um, and they have very strong opinions on how this sport should run. And many of them aren't equipped with um, really good coaching capabilities beyond the the yelling the the dominance the control and and I think they really fear that if they don't have control that they won't be able to be successful and their athletes won't be able to be successful and because a coach's identity is so wrapped up in their profession because it's basically encompasses their entire life as I said before their social um needs their their um learning their income everything is wrapped up in this coaching role that they have a lot to hold on to and they feel like they have a lot to lose and that's a very scary place for all of them to operate from absolutely and kind of one thing that i'd like to return to um to kind of help start to wrap up the conversation because you've been so generous with your time and and you've just um, really answered our questions so thoughtfully You started to talk about ways that the kind of kids um, talk about and kind of phrase their experiences of abuse or kind of boundary breaking. And, and, you know, I want to emphasize this whole model that we currently have, the approach that we currently have, where we rely on um, child athletes to come to us and to sort of verbalize their experiences of abuse. This assumes that the kids know how to talk about these things. And I mean, I don't like most adults don't even know how to talk about these things. So I can't imagine how kids on their own would like magically be be able to 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 communicate what, what they're experiencing and sort of what's going on. And so how do kids tend to talk about these things and kind of what are some ways we can sort of um, pick up on their language and kind of probe them to ask? or I probe them to kind of talk about it in deeper ways so that we can pick up what's going on. Yeah, I think, like I said, yeah, to, as a parent, to be tuned into the subtleties of the message, the subtleties of the words the children are using, coaches mad at me. Okay, what do you mean by mad at you? Can you describe the behavior? How did they show you were mad, they were mad at you? What led mm-hmm. to the um, the conversation that you thought the coach was mad at you. Um, it's very, it, it, it's honestly, it's very difficult. I can remember having these conversations where I'd ask those questions and my daughter would say things like, well, I was scared to do uh, my series on beam, which is like more than one skill in a row. And, and so the coach was mad and the other girl would say, yeah, the same for me. I was scared also because I hadn't done it on the high beam yet. And the coach was mad. and so. You know, I didn't think I didn't I didn't know how to deal with that because it was like, okay, I can see then that the coach is frustrated. So that's how I would try to reframe it. I said, well, it sounds like the coach is frustrated. Mm -hmm. And but really what Mm -hmm. I was doing by saying that was minimizing what they were saying to me. 
And perhaps as a former athlete myself, and I realized this sadly in hindsight, I probably wasn't the most equipped to, to be on alert for abusive practices because so much of it had been normalized for me my whole life. So in my head, I'm partially going, yeah, well, I think the coach was probably frustrated at you and that made them sound mad because they were probably getting upset that you wouldn't do that. But what I was missing because I had been an athlete in that exact situation in that exact sport, what I was missing was that it's okay for a child to say, no, I'm too scared. My body is telling me not to do this skill because it doesn't feel ready and I have a natural inclination in my human instinct repertoire to protect myself from harm. And if I don't feel ready, then I'm not going to do it. And I wish I had said those kinds of things to my daughter and her friends, but I I didn't know that at the time. And I don't know how a non-sport parent or like a a non-former athlete parent could even hope to deal with this stuff. And that's why the... Mm -hmm. The onus cannot be on the parent. The onus cannot be on the child athlete. The onus Mm -hmm. is on um, the sports system. It's on our Mm -hmm. NCCP coaching accreditation. It's the onus is on the funding bodies like Sport Canada and Own the Podium. Like stop rewarding sports where there's overwhelming an overwhelming number of allegations about abuse and um, harassment towards athletes. Stop rewarding that with money. Tell them they have to get their game in order before they're going to get any more money. Um, yeah, I, I guess, I guess the 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 sad thing is is it is very difficult, and you know parents need to be attuned to the subtle language. And I I think what worked for me in the end when when I had a couple of examples of truly unacceptable behavior um, with respect to my child, I I wanted still to give my child some agency over whether she left a club and went to a new one, because that's the other thing. She was very uh, groomed to thinking that any going to any other club meant that she was a loser. Um, She had grown Mm. up with that for several years, being told that this was the best club anywhere and to go anywhere else meant you were subpar. And so I spent, you know, a good couple months, few months maybe, and so did my husband, really getting her to answer some tough questions and think critically and come up with her own evaluation and think about how she wanted to be treated versus how she was being treated. and asking whether or not she felt that, you know, she was in the company of adults who wanted what was best for her, or were they seeking to fulfill their own goals? Those types of hard questions. I mean, these are hard questions. She was 10 and then 11 years old when we were doing this. But eventually, Mm -hmm. it was planting the seed and that being somewhere else meant she might actually have the joy back again from her sport. Mm -hmm. And that she was honoring herself as a person and the opinions of others um, saying another club was bad or good were irrelevant because all she wanted to do was enjoy her sport again and, and feel safe. And, you know, so planting those seeds slowly um, asking her, I remember one time I, we, we, you know, and I speak from a place of privilege. I'm very well aware of that. This is not something everybody, 
parent could do. But I had the opportunity to take her to a club in the U.S. where um, actually it was where Jade Carey was training and her father was the coach. And and he must have spent hours with my daughter um, and and very kindly teaching her a skill um, when there was just a few of them training. This was not a private session, but it was just happened to be he had some time on his hands and Jade was finished her practice. So there was a few girls that were um, still doing their practice. And, and he spent a lot of time with her. And when she came out of that session with her her other teammates, uh, group mates at the time, she was glowing. They were all glowing because this, you know, coach of a world champion was spending this time with them and and he was kind and he was considerate and and that's the only behavior I've ever seen from him even within the gym or from a distance I'm not an expert on his behavior mm-hmm. but you know when I asked my daughter okay do you still want to quit gymnastics then because you seem mm-hmm. so happy and I said what is your love of sport right now and she said it's a nine out of 10. And I said, okay, Mm. so why do you want to quit then? And she looked at me and yelled, you haven't asked me what my love of my club is. And I was like, okay, Mm. there's the difference, right? So I asked her, what's your love of club? And she said, it's a two on a good day. (laughs) Mm. And I said, okay, I think you've answered your own question then. Are you ready to try Mm. a different club? And she said, yes, I am. And that was it. Though my called my husband, we got back to town, and that was it. She did, you know, one last day to sort of say goodbye to her friends, and she was out of that club. But it was difficult, and you know I don't know if I did the right thing by allowing it to drag on for a couple of months. Maybe I should have just yanked her out and put her somewhere else. But I, you know, she was a child who seemed so robbed of of agency and, and control of her, of her life and her body and all the things that I, I did the best I could to honor that it could be her decision as much as possible. But at some point I would have just pulled her if she hadn't come to the conclusion that this was unsafe for her. I mean, that's such a great, I'm so glad you walked us through that because I think what you explained provides a really good example of of one way to go about these things when there's, you know, seems to be evidence of your child being unhappy and just really like not thriving, doing the opposite of thriving, mm-hmm. right? And just really not doing, you know, not having the experience that you want for them that you think is the healthiest. And I think you know, pulling them out is, I think, as you're pointing out, can be the best way to go about some about it in some situations. But I also appreciate what you explained as sort of like, this was a joint decision. And I think leading her on a path to making the decision that all of you made together, you know, that increases obviously her own support and kind of buy into what's going on and also shows the sort of level of trust that you built with her, that you and your partner built with her. And I think that's really important so that she is able to take away from that situation many of the things that you just explained, which is that sense of agency, which especially when they're in a situation where they've been, you know, really robbed of that agency and those boundaries have been like bulldozed by coaches, you know, again and again and again, to the point where they're not, may not be able to kind of see everything clearly. Um, And then also empowers her to recognize 
how things could be different, right? And like you said, obviously the ability to take her to somewhere else that seems to have been a much healthier and positive environment allows her to see the possibilities and, and allows her to say, you know, you didn't ask me the question about the club, right? To kind of, you know, so that she feels empowered to kind of say, this is the question that I still think needs to be answered, which is right. Um, so I think, I think that's really, really excellent. And like, you know, like you're pointing out in the moment, like nobody's going to have all the perfect answers. No one's going to have all the perfect responses and make the perfect decisions and expecting perfection sets the bar too high. But I think creating an environment where it can be a back and forth and a joint decision, um, I think is a really, really excellent way, way to approach it. Um, can I just interject on that? That it was, do. it wasn't without retaliation. So I don't want to, mm-hmm. I don't want to create this false sense of security. These actions mm-hmm. are really tough on the child and the parent. And I really appreciate you validating our experience. It was really hard. And, and that's, that's not hard from a place of, I didn't feel like we had invested anything. Like it wasn't, I mean, it was, we were just living our life and honoring our daughter's dream to participate in a sport. So the money we paid for it, the time we spent driving, there was no, there was never any sense that that would get paid back. She could have gotten a full ride scholarship and it still would not have, uh, you know, balanced out our effort and money for what she achieved. So it was never about that. And, and I think I speak to that um, because of my own experience. It, my whole life and what I try to impart on my kids is that it's a journey. And so you have to be enjoying the journey because the destination or the end result will never make up for any of the the truly traumatic experiences that you will you may have had. So we have to make the journey day by day the best we can make it. Um, the risk of retaliation for athletes coming forward and complaining is a very real um, and very scary thing. And it doesn't just affect the athletes. I actually spent three hours talking on the phone last week with a, a former Canadian Olympic team member. And the heartache that the parents and the young athlete, who's now a a young adult, went through over the years, trying to ensure her safety and trying to um, ensure um, her her well-being and health. It doesn't matter. I mean, they barely even bring up the fact she made the Olympics. It's such a non-positive thing. Um, compared to the pain of the journey. So is it worth it? I don't know. Like, not for me and, and, and not what I want for my child. Um, you know, making the Olympic team in the U.S. might be financially more beneficial than what I see in Canada. But even then, nobody wants to be a broken young adult. Nobody wants to spend you know, their 20s, possibly their 30s, overcoming an eating disorder and low self-worth and low low self-esteem. Nobody wants that. And that's not why parents put their kids in sport. We don't put them in to be broken down so that we can then repair them when they become adults. Um, that's the antithesis of what we're doing. 
So again, it comes back to the NSO, the state and provincial organizations and the club to do the right thing, step into your duty of care, step up into morally and ethically driven choices, you know, embrace the values that even, you know, the the values that even the IOC puts out there, and they're not a by a long stretch, a perfect organization. But, you know, there are values out there that are great, but everybody has to live them in order for them to benefit, um, benefit our populations, you know, and we, and back to speaking out, you know, a global conversation has surfaced in the last couple of years about how athletes are treated and more importantly, how they feel about the way they're treated. It's it's truly galvanized an outrage of former athletes now in their adult years, like myself, who are saying this treatment wasn't acceptable back then, and we have mm-hmm. to stop it for all the little girls and boys who want to play sport today. And so we need the Rick Westheads and the Scott Reeds of the world to continue reporting on what's happening um, in the locker rooms of the training facilities so that the general public who is consuming these sports have a better appreciation for what these people go through, these athletes go through. And, and we need to start by believing. And when an allegation is brought forward, we need to come from the place where we've believed. And like what you've done for me today, Joanna, to validate an experience, you know, this is not easy. I don't come on to a podcast or speak to the media because I want my face out there or for people to know my personal failings as a parent. That is not why I'm doing this. This is hard work. It was hard work to be a board member whose voice was stifled and who, you know, ultimately couldn't continue on in the capacity because, because you know, decisions are being made at lots of different levels that I, I couldn't live with. So this work is not easy. And, and I feel for the many other parents, board members, even sports administrators who are and coaches who are trying to make a difference in the sport and who are being treated like outcasts because it's not hard. But I do take comfort in the fact that in the last couple of years, I've gone from feeling completely alone in my experiences and my confusion on how to deal with things to realizing there's a massive network out there of academics and journalists and um sport people who are really trying to make a difference and we need to continue to work together um you know academics need to keep doing what they're doing and and also making it publicly accessible like you you all are doing um and 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 media um bringing forward the the true life experiences and athletes having the courage to speak up and, and sports organizations giving those athletes the, the venue to speak up and use their experience to, to improve things going forward. Uh, to me, that's the only way. We have to all work together um, and, and, and mobilize as a, as a unit to a very single-mindedly focused unit to get to that end result, which is making sport safe and inclusive for everyone. 
Absolutely. Well, Kim, you just said it more perfectly than Nathan or I can or Derek, if you were able to be here. Um, thank you so much for joining us today. I, I can imagine that discussing these things is just, it's, you know, it's really hard. And to your point about how, like, you don't do this for fame, the same thing goes for us too. And, you know, we get called all sorts of things for kind yes. of spotlighting these things, spotlighting these issues and kind of you know, we're social justice warriors or, you know, we're really um, smug or, you know, self-righteous or whatever. But those are just naysayers who want to stifle people who are talking about this because they they apparently want the abuse to continue. I don't you know, there are lots of other reasons, too. But um, so thank you so much for joining us today. And it's just been a real pleasure to get to know you and just to learn from you. And I and I know we're just going to continue talking as we have been over the last year. So thank you so much for joining us and for really helping helping parents and, and observers out there, because this is all information that we could use. So thank you so much for joining us today. Oh, you're so welcome. And it's been a really valuable and um, heartening experience for me also. So thank you for the work you three are doing. And, um, and thanks for having me today. <laughs>